my sense is, picking up on what Susan just said, is that tax reform can be the icebreaker in the Congress, both in terms of economics and in terms of politics. In terms of economics, both Democrats and Republicans understand that this tax system is dysfunctional. They both understand that it is anti-growth. Both parties understand that it doesn't give uh, the people of our country, our individuals, businesses, the certainty and predictability they need. The other day, the Wall Street Journal said the only thing that is permanent about the tax code is its impermanence. So the fundamentals with respect to economics, the same thing would be true with, with respect to simplicity, the bureaucratic water torture of filling out these tax forms. Both Democrats and Republicans understand that this system is broken. In terms of the politics, when you look at tough, complicated issues, people always try to see, well, what did we do? Is there any history of this? Has anybody got a sense of how to go forward? We've done this before, folks. A quarter century ago, another tall Democrat on the Finance Committee with a quite a bit better jump shot than me, <laughs> got together with a conservative Republican president. And right away they agreed on the fundamentals, which was you had to sweep out a ton of clutter, special interest tax breaks, to hold down the rates for everybody and keep progressivity. The issue today is no different. Those are still the fundamentals. I serve on the Finance Committee. Virtually all the witnesses that come before us, I ask, do you still think that frame, clean out the clutter, hold down rates for everybody to keep progressivity, is valid today like it was in 1986? And across the board, they do. This is backed up by the commission that George W. Bush had, where Connie Mack, a Republican, and uh, John Bro, a Democrat, came to the same conclusion. This is backed up by the Volcker Commission that President Obama had that came to the same you know, conclusion. Folks, we've done this before. And so what Dan and I have been trying to do now, low these many months, is to try to lock in an agreement, Democrats and Republicans, so this will be priority business in the fall and for the rest of the Congress. We never said, oh, you know, let's rush out and write a tax reform bill between now and August 2nd and try to rush this. But it ought to be priority business for the fall, and it ought to be priority business for the rest of the Congress. Last point that I would make, and I know you're going to ask a lot of questions about the specifics and the like, is the one that Dan and I feel most strongly about. Tax reform is about jobs. It's about the number one issue that people talk around the kitchen table in Indiana, Ohio, Oregon, everywhere else. People in my state are not immersed in these technical kinds of issues about what percentage of GDP government spending ought to be and the like. They want to know how are we going to grow permanent private sector jobs. Again, the history here is very good. In the two years after Democrats and Ronald Reagan got together on tax reform, 
we created, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 6.3 million new jobs. That sounds pretty good right now. Nobody is going to claim that tax reform is responsible for every one of those jobs. There's monetary policy, a host of other issues. But boy, it sure sounds good that on the tax reform watch, in 24 months after tax reform went into effect, it was a jobs producer. We had a hearing in the Finance Committee yesterday uh, with all the corporate CEOs coming in. I was very pleased that they got the heart of the message, which was they would give up tax breaks that they now get in return for holding down rates and basic principles of tax reform. So we are ready to go, folks. The question is trying to make sure that the importance and the relevance of this issue penetrates, as Susan said, all of the back and forth and the nastiness and the polarization. And as far as the cause of trying to get the message out and to give you an idea of Dan Coates's commitment to bipartisanship and jobs and growth, Danny called me before he was sworn in. He called me and I just had my prostate out. And he called me and said, you've been a pal for years. I'm really looking forward to your being healthy and working on tax reform. So I have the best possible partner in the United States Senate. Give a big round of applause to my friend, Dan Cook. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure for me to, to uh, be standing here, be in this room, see so many friends that I served with, Bill Frenzel, uh, Nancy and others, uh, a lot of people who helped make it possible for me to be in the Congress and then in the Senate and then the most unlikely of all stories to come back to the Senate. Uh, anyway, it feels really good to be uh, among friends uh, in this room. Uh, Adam Howard is my tax guy uh, who works uh, with Ron's and my chief of staff, Dean, Hin Dean Hinkson, has already been, been mentioned here. But uh, I got a call from Judd Gregg, who as you know was leading the Senate, and he said, you know, Ron and I have been working in putting together a comprehensive tax reform for two years, grinding it out, meeting all the time, uh, massaging this, tweaking that, putting something together that can genuinely be called comprehensive tax reform, built on the principle of growth and providing a, a boost to the economy and getting sensible tax policies in place that could accomplish that based on historical precedents that, that Ron has already mentioned. And uh, we've come a long way. And someone needs to take the baton from me and carry it in the Senate in a bipartisan way, and you really ought to take a look at this. And so I several talked to, with uh, Judd, uh, looked at the uh, uh, proposal as it existed then. Uh, we, we worked some things where I had some questions. Um, and from that point forward, we've been going forward on a bipartisan basis, really a nonpartisan basis, because this is more than bipartisan. It's nonpartisan. There's no reason why people have to divide this along any kind of partisan lines, uh, because it's, it's based on the very basic principles which, which uh, undermine this, uh, underlay this whole a tax reform, simplicity. Uh, we can go through the details of simplicity, but our, I don't have to spend time telling you about how complex our tax code is and how many hours are spent by how many people uh, and the fact that uh, most of them have to call up 
a number somewhere and get somebody to fill out their tax form. I had three tax courses in, in law school, and I can't fill out my tax form and have any assurance that it's anywhere close to what it ought to be. Uh, fairness. Um, we have kept progressivity in there, but there, there's a, we've, we've looked at how we can make this fair. Uh, Growth-oriented, of course, underlies uh, all of that and all the policies we have in there to try to accomplish that. Revenue neutral, we didn't want to get into a fight about let's just raise revenue or cut taxes or whatever. It is revenue neutral. And I think the most important thing, it is not locked in cement. This isn't a take it or leave it proposition. We are open for business. We are open to listen to anybody who want to walks into our door and sit down and say, you know, this provision that you have in here, let me tell you what, how it affects my business. Or let me tell you, and then we, we talk it through, and we are open to suggestions. So when we talk to our colleagues in the Senate, and hopefully in the House, uh, we say to them, this isn't uh, take it or leave it or written in cement. Uh, if you've got some concerns about it, let's sit down and see if we can work out a, a provision. And that's the way it's going to get passed. Now lastly, let me just say that <clears throat> there's now almost unanimous consensus. I guess that's a, it's a double uh, whatever. <clears throat> My wife knows the term for that. She's always reminding me that uh, on the grammar stuff. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the fact that uh, it, it stands here as uh, uh, with a consensus that comprehensive tax reform has to be an integral part of fixing this debt deficit mess, fiscal mess that we're in. I think is what's going to drive this. And what one of the things that Ron and I have been trying to do is inform and advise and encourage all the various groups that are trying to put plans together to incorporate at least instructional information and perhaps mandated uh, language into whatever agreements finally come down in terms of how we go forward here for a commitment to comprehensive tax reform. Uh, you can't find an economist who doesn't say, or an analyst or a nonpartisan someone looking at our current situation, that you can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish without tax reform. And so I think we've made some really significant progress on that. Appreciate the opportunity that you've given both of us to come here. Um, uh, I, when I decided to run again, I didn't think that, you know, my, one of the first things that I would do. Um, having been told for nine months during the campaign, don't you dare cross the aisle and talk to a Democrat because we're going to come over and, and, and uh, take you back out of office. One of the first things I'd do was, was not only call a Democrat, but call Ron Wyden, who has some pretty good credentials on the other side of the uh, ideological spectrum. But what a joy it has been to join up together in a product that I think we can we can honestly stand up and say, you know, this can take, we can take this out of politics and do what's right for America by going forward with this. Now, there's tons of details to all of this. We're happy to share all those with you. I don't think we need to get into the weeds today. But we do want to, uh, we do appreciate the opportunity to come and speak. We do appreciate uh, and we'll look forward to those of you who represent various industries, businesses, individuals, groups, and so forth, of calling us up, working with us, my boss says, how does this work? Uh, our company gets hit by this. What, what, uh, how do you guys respond to that? Like I say, we're open for business. So thanks very much for allowing us to come over, and I think it's time to take some questions.
I'll leave this one. But I want to thank both of you very, very much. And if I may, I'm going to quote your press release. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, uh -oh. When the bill came out, and then I'd ask you both to comment on this, because I'm assuming your office approved the quote. <laughs> Pretty good assumption. <laughs> Cutting spending isn't the way out of the budgetary hole. Congress can grow its way out. In today's highly charged political atmosphere, do you think that's actually really possible? to pass a bill that has no budget cuts? Well, for, first of all, Susan, the, the quote really comes from Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson keeping on the bipartisan theme. What they have said repeatedly is cutting alone will not do it. You've got to have growth. And the only other thing I, I was going to uh, pick up on in terms of sort of where the debate is Tax reform is the one unused growth tool in the economic tool shed. Look at where we've been, and this is just going to be sort of a recitation, not whether you agree with it or not. The Federal Reserve is all in. They have done everything they could to drive down you know, rates. The Recovery Act passed. You can be for it, you can be against it. Big, major policy, major initiative. Lots of housing initiatives, again, to try to help people who have been hard hit. Tool after tool after tool has been used. So tax reform sits there in that economic tool shed, rested and ready, <laughs> proven rested and ready on the basis of what we saw in, uh, in 1986. And I really do feel, the way I would characterize it, and picking up on the climate that you correctly identified, this can be the icebreaker. After months and months of polarization, this can be the icebreaker on both economic grounds and political you know, grounds. And by the way, when this is done, this bill is not going to be named after Dan Coates or Ron Wyden, my wife you know, owns one of the country's great bookstores up in New York City, The Strand. And she's never done politics before, and all this is kind of new to her. And she looks at my committees and says, well, Ron, you're on about everything except acoustics and ventilation up there. <laughs> so, you know, this bill is not going to be named after Dan Coates and Ron Wyden. This will be the Obama, Boehner, McConnell, Baucus. Those will be the names on the bill. But we believe that we can help do a lot of the heavy lifting you know, now, just the way Nancy Johnson and Bill Frenzel did in all their years on the Ways and Means Committee, working with a lot of other like-minded, pragmatic Democrats and, and Republicans. And that's what we're trying to do, is break the ice in a very divided kind of time. Yeah, I think uh, everybody understands that cutting alone, taxing alone, uh, will not solve our problem. It's all of the above has to be addressed. And as Ron said, uh, this uh, this could be the, the wedge that allows us to move much, much closer to a bipartisan effort um, in, in doing so. And, and this has to be a, a, a big component of it. But, uh, you know, we, we, we're clearly in a culture now where we've gone from spend, spend, spend to cut, 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 which is a pretty dramatic uh, uh, shift on this. 
and we want to just I just might want to add the name we'll put Dave Camp's name in here Good. too I think that Absolutely. would be appreciated in this room so deservedly <laughs> so Dave Camp has been wonderfully constructed in this effort and a lot of others to be bipartisan so thank you for doing that uh, questions more questions Senators as you go forward with what's a very big complicated set of issues what do you think are the practical and political obstacles that you can expect to deal with in Baxter I'll start there and then let uh, Ron, uh, there's, a, there's a debate over the territorial tax issue uh, that uh, we have to work through. I will say this, uh, I have heard, and I'll, then I'll let Ron talk, I've heard from a number of companies who said, uh, you've got to address this, we're just so international at this particular point in time, uh, this, this affects us very dramatically. I've had other international companies come to me, CEOs sit down and say, you give me 22 to 24 percent tax rate. I don't care what you can take everything else out of there. You, said, you know we are we are bumping up against the the, the top uh, the top rate. We are not competitive with our competitors. Uh, you've got to get us uh, more competitive uh, worldwide. We have a repatriation provision in there that addresses uh, uh, money that uh, uh, could come back at a at a say a five and a quarter percent rate. Uh, so there's a number. I think that's probably one of the larger, uh, larger issues. And I'll let you pick up. Let me make one point, and then we can get into the eyeball-hurting discussion of territorial and and the like, because it is uh, it's pretty um, pretty treacherous stuff. The biggest challenge with respect to tax reform, in my view, is what was seen in 1986 which is the second you go on out there with something like this, all the special interest groups say, you take away the break that I care about and Western civilization is going to end. <laughs> that somehow all of these other breaks, we really don't need them. But you know, the one that we're talking about, absolutely vital to economic growth, and you should hear it in the Finance Committee now, people actually come on in and they try to make arguments that some of the tax breaks they want will help improve the fight against terrorism and all kinds of things. I mean, that will be, I think, the central challenge, and we ought to recognize how difficult, difficult it will be. I think we also have seen, and you see this in some of the debt ceiling discussion right now, that with the online factor in American politics today, the blogs and the immediacy of information, it probably makes it easier for the special interest groups to frighten people, crank up these sort of astroturf kind of campaigns where you tell people, Dan Coates is going to take away your home. That will be the kind of thing that people will raise if there is discussion you know, about the, you know, the mortgage uh, deduction. And there certainly is going to be, you know, discussions. Uh, Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson got in, into that. But I, I think that will be the biggest single challenge. And it is easier for special interest groups to scare people in the online world than it was back in 1986 when we didn't have that immediacy of communications. Here's, just to add one thing there. Um, 
in the tax expenditure area, we have retained the mortgage interest deduction and the charitable deduction because, uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, it immediately creates a diversion into the whole thing is bad because you've got this. And secondly, because the housing industry is in desperate shape right now, the worst thing I think we could do is, is put another nail in the coffin uh, on the mortgage uh, uh, deduction. And it doesn't mean it can't be adjusted or means tested or whatever, but right now it's totally uh, excluded from, uh, I mean, it's included, it's retained. The charitable, as the government, obviously is uh, uh, scaling back uh, for financial reasons on what it can do with the safety net. We don't want to discourage those who are working to support and have nonprofit, non-government, uh, charitable organizations, whether it's Catholic Charities or uh, somebody, uh, a church soup kitchen, um, not to be in a position to have some encouragement uh, to support that kind of effort. So we start out uh, by retaining those two provisions in the tax code. And let, let me just do one quick point on territorial and worldwide taxation and the like. Judd Gregg and I spent 18 gazillion hours working through this whole question. And Dan and I spent probably another umpteen thousand on it as well right after he arrived. So I want to make it clear I'm open with respect to a lot of the specifics. But let me just kind of walk through a couple of the key you know, numbers. The deferral break, which you get if you're doing business overseas, you get to defer paying taxes until you bring that money back, is about $500 billion over 10 years. So it is the big one. If you, as Judd and Dan and I do, take that away and apply those very same dollars, those very same dollars, to cutting rates for American companies doing business in the United States, you can get into the low 20s. We're at 24. We could go down lower if that was part of an effort to get a bipartisan deal. You can go into the low 20s in terms of the corporate rate. And as they said in the 80s, low rates do a lot for competitiveness. It solves a lot of problems. I will tell you, having looked at the math for territorial, and John can give you one of the studies done by the major accounting firms that said that Dan and I provide more relief to business than you would get under a territorial system, I hope that we will stay open on the specifics and a number of the businesses yesterday that wanted rates in the uh, middle uh, 20s, not only can they get there with the approach Dan and I uh, have talked about, we can get lower. The other point on territorial that Judd and I could just never get our arms around is what are you going to do about tax gaming? is if you have a territorial system and somebody generates the profit in one country and books the taxes in another place, we could be right back at the same kind of, are we just kind of gaming the system? What Dan and I want to do is create jobs, have a competitive system. We're going to stay open on the details, but those are some of the issues that we're going to have to get into. talked on the expenditure side and, and talked broader. Uh, 
another issue that you haven't touched on and that we started with a problem in the Reagan-O'Neill tax package and we've gone through all the way is this effort to get people out of the system. So we assume that you're going to maintain progressivity in the rates, that they're going to be a flatter system. How do we broaden the base where we keep individuals invested in our society when we're now looking at 47% of individuals no longer pay individual taxes on the system? Are you broadening the base? Well, our attempt is to broaden the base. We think it does broaden the base. <clears throat> we. Um, Uh, well, that's a very good question, uh, the word everyone. Uh, I personally, I'm just stepping aside from this, I personally believe that everybody ought to have some skin in the game. Not part of this proposal, but something that I've been toying with is the thought that those who are not paying any taxes but are receiving benefits from the government because of their income status and so forth, that there ought to be a deduction from the benefit that they receive, even if it's 10 bucks or $15 or whatever, with a statement on the check every month that it arrives, we have deducted $10 from your this or whatever percent or whatever you do, so that uh, in order to help support uh, uh, for your participation in helping support our country's needs, and however, you want to, however you want to state it, we have not incorporated that in this. But we do believe that the way this is structured, that it greatly broadens the base. Um, we do uh, increase substantially the, the standard deduction. And so a lot of people who would be itemizing now can easily fill out a two-page form. Uh, it will fall under that level and, and provide great simplification in the whole process. And I'm going to turn it over to you to whatever else you want to add. The whole question of skin in the game and, and the like, to me goes right to the heart of what we want in American you know, government. To me, I've always been somebody who said we ought to be trying to constantly look when you're talking about rights, about responsibilities. And sometimes the scale gets a little out of whack you know, one, one way or another. In the health reform bill that I wrote, we had 14 senators on it half Democrats, half Republicans, we had a special section called personal responsibility that basically said if you had $10 to your name, you had to pay something. You had to pay something because medical goods and services you know, aren't, aren't free. So I think I've made it clear over kind of my time in public service that I believe strongly in balancing rights and responsibilities. Now on taxes, we know that millions of Americans pay a lot more in payroll taxes than they pay in income taxes. And that is what has produced you know, the figure that I think you and, and, and others you know, often cite. This bill broadens the base. I certainly want to have fairness for you know, everybody. The question always is, if people essentially have nothing, then how do you look at that? And I think that's the issue your uh, question will, will trigger. But we definitely broaden the base in this legislation. There is no doubt about that. Right here. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit in Susan's camp, slipping into a real funk. Uh, I want to believe uh, uh, this in the worst way. 
and uh, and would would offer the suggestion that maybe it would be better if, if your names were on the bill uh, than McConnell and Boehner and Reid and Pelosi, uh, which which really raises the question uh, not not to get personal but leadership. Uh, what, would you reflect on the leadership in this environment to achieve what, uh, to go back to the basketball uh, analogy, should be a slam dunk? <laughs> well, the last thing I want to do is call out any names uh, <clears throat> at this point. Um, my own feeling is that, that uh, the American public has finally, and having come through the 2010 election, the American public has finally come to grips with the fact that, you know, the, the golden goose simply can't keep laying golden eggs. And that some pretty dramatic things need to be done uh, over uh, the next several years. Uh, not just this, but several things have to be done to get us back uh, in, in, in fiscal health. Uh, the recognition that uh, we no longer dominate the world in terms of our ability to produce and sell goods. That we've got real competition out there. Uh, the fact that we are having such structural change in our employment base, um, and that we're ill-equipped in many ways to deal with that structural change in terms of how to take people that have had a lifetime of one skill and transfer that into the skills needed for the future uh, is a very difficult uh, proposition. So. Um, uh, it's an enormous task, and I, I think getting back to, to leadership, uh, you know, we're in a transition period here as to how we used to operate and how we're going to have to operate uh, in the future. But the only way it's going to work is to, is to go through this very gut-wrenching process of coming to the reality that the, it, this, this, what we are facing now is a game-changer. I mean, it's, it, this is not just a, another cyclical economic downturn or uh, followed by a robust uh, uh, upturn after we suffer through several months of, of recession. That this is, uh, as somebody, you know, I guess one of the titles of the book says, this time it's different. I think that was uh, Rogoff and, and uh, Reinhardt's uh, book. Uh, just had a, had a fellow up in, uh, in the Senate, we met with 10 senators, uh, the guy who wrote Endgame. Uh, talking about the end of the 60-year debt super cycle and what countries are going to have to go through, we've seen we've seen previews of this with the, our states, and uh, uh, the housing situation is is one of the symptoms of all this. There's more to come, in my belief, and so it's a, it's a real game changer in terms of how we think about policy and how we address policy. And I, I think it's going to be a little, it's very difficult, obviously, and ugly in the process as we make this transition. But I think the public is there, and in, in some ways I think they're ahead of the curve, ahead of Washington. Um, and they're reflecting that at the polls. So I think we're in for some, some rocky times and some transition times, and transition and change always brings, uh, uh, you know, dis distress and, and these, this kind of, these kind of fights. Uh, just quote guy, a guy by the name of Monet, who did not the guy who painted the pictures, but uh, <laughs> a French economist who said, change really only comes through necessity. And necessity usually isn't understood until there's a crisis. And we are bordering on the, on the edge of a crisis here, a very big crisis, potentially worldwide crisis, and it is forcing uh, necessity, uh, which will bring about change.
there's an old kind of phrase that came up in 1986. It's often attributed to Bill, Bill Bradley. The tax reform is always totally, completely, and thoroughly impossible until 15 minutes before it comes together. And I still think that there's a lot of you know, validity uh, in this. Tax reform really would hit, again, a number of the kind of concerns that I call the icebreakers. Tax reform is a way to generate revenue that both Democrats and Republicans can support. One of the biggest sticking blocks in the ongoing talks, you all have seen it, it's on cable every 15 minutes. Someone comes on and says, revenue, the issue holding up, you know, progress, can't make talks, can't surmount, you know, the revenue question. The way to come up with additional revenue is by generating private sector employment through tax reform so that folks who now get, apropos of your question, who might have unemployment and uh, food stamps will have paychecks in the private sector and will be paying taxes on the compensation they get. So this is one way uh, to actually address a concern that is dominating the gridlock right now between Democrats and Republicans. The other point about this is if you look at tax reform in the last kind of three weeks, we were almost at the top of the roller coaster. Dan and I were watching the talks. There was a period where comprehensive tax reform, I was getting my little cheat sheet, made it in to the grand bargain. That was President Obama and Speaker Boehner. Then it made it into the majority leader's plan. Uh, the gang of six included in their proposal. I heard several references from uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, that were favorable about tax reform. So tax reform was almost at the top of the mountain, only after about 72 hours to kind of be, well, we're for it, but maybe you know another time. And there were questions about how you'd carry it out. Well, there are a variety of ways that you'd carry it out. You could give it to the commission. Uh, you could say if it's not done by a date certain, tax expenditures would take a haircut. I mean, there are a variety of ways uh, to do this. So uh, Dan's point is, is a very valid one, that you know, I think people are now looking at this and recognizing its potential. And if good folks like you help us get this message out, I think we can punch, up, punch through and, and get this queued up so it's priority business for the fall. That's what it ought to be. It's not something anybody's going to try to concoct in a week. That would be absurd. But to get it front and center for the fall has been what Dan and I have been working on for many months now. Could I wrap up by just saying, you know, <clears throat> I'm sitting here listening to Ron Wyden talk, and I'm hearing Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp. Bill <laughs> <laughs> Bradley and Dick Gephardt. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you.